0: This is Jim Martin with Little Things First. Tracy
1: Vandiventer, Little Things First podcast, where we look at the little things that make a big difference in our
0: schools. Yeah. Tracy, who are we talking to today? I
1: am so excited. We are going to be talking to Dr. Howard Fields, who is another National Distinguished Principal, and he's coming to us from Missouri. And it sounds like he maybe has had a transition in his career we're going to learn more about, but he is a recognized as a courageous leader, and I am very excited to hear about the work he's been doing to support his students.
0: I'm going to start to create a map of all the people that we've interviewed.
1: Like little of, stickers we can yeah, put on like, our... Yeah, I
0: wonder how many kind mm-hmm. states we've been in. Mm-hmm. Good question. Yeah.
1: I would like to actually travel there also in some time (laughs) future if COVID would just, you know, go away.
0: I know. I'd like to see some of these schools in action.
1: I would love it too, and I'd love to see Dr. Fields in action. So let's call him, find out more about the work that he's doing in Rock Hill, but he's in the St. Louis area. All right, here we go. Dr. Fields. There it
2: goes. Hello.
1: Hi, is this Dr. Fields? Speaking. We are so excited to talk with you. My name is Tracy Vandiventer. I am with Little Things First podcast, and I'm with my co host, Jim Martin.
0: Hi, Dr. Fields. Hey, how are you, Jim? It's a pleasure to speak with you all. <laughs> same
1: we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule and as we looked through the you know the bio on the national distinguished principal list you have been a busy guy (laughs) (laughs) right
2: yeah yes i have yes i have
1: (laughs) we would love it if you'd take time to introduce yourself and all of the work that you've been involved in you know that just has really made a difference for kids
2: Well, you just hit it right on the head right there. At the end of the day, for me, it's about putting yourself in a position, being part of an amazing community and team to do what's best for kids. And when we say what's best, um, that varies. And I'm pretty sure we're going to go into those conversations. So again, um, it's a pleasure being here. It's a pleasure being recognized uh, by educators, specifically in the state of Missouri, for the work that we do. I mean, it's a humbling experience. My name is Dr. Howard Fields. I am the proud assistant superintendent of Human Resources in the Kirkwood School District, located in St. Louis, Missouri, um, St. Louis County to be specific. Prior to that, I served as the building principal at two schools in one building. Um, That school was Steger 6th Grade Center, as well as the Dr. Henry Gibbons Jr. Elementary School. Again, those two schools were housed in the same building. And that was in the Webster Grove School District, which is right down the street from Kirkville, actually rival. So while uh, people were excited that I had an opportunity to transition to a district level position, um, there is a rival there. So I will say that. And um, I started my administrative career in Riverview Garden School District, which is located in St. Louis County as well. And so um, I'm excited to continue to do the work. Um, I did not know that I was going to transition uh, with COVID in mind, but what I will say is the silver lining is with all of the things going on in our society right now and in education, um, if you love to problem solve, if you love to push yourself, if you love to collaborate And if you have a thing or two that you're trying to work on on a broader scale, um, education field is probably you're getting your money's worth is the best way I can say (laughs) it right now.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Never a boring day. So will you talk a little bit about the sixth grade center? I'm curious about that.
2: Absolutely. And so Steger sixth grade center um, is the district. Um, school for all of the sixth graders. And so in the Webster Grove School District, we had approximately 5,000 students or so in the district. Of that 5,000, about 378, it varies every single year, but about 378 students, they would all come to one school. The main floor was the sixth grade center, and we had 16 content teachers Um, Students were on four different teams and they came from, I believe, five or six different elementary schools from throughout the district. When I mentioned elementary schools, one of the district elementary schools, it was a smaller school, albeit, but it was still an elementary school. And that elementary school was housed at the lower level of the building that I was in for sixth graders and that being Gibbons. So Steger Sixth Grade Center is the district sixth grade center.
0: And so um, you, it talks about in your bio that you increased elective opportunities. Is that what it was for the sixth grade center?
2: Yes, okay. yes, elective opportunities for the sixth graders.
0: And will you talk a little bit about the choices that you made with that, and and what was your rationale for, you know, changing what was available to the students?
2: Absolutely. So when I first came in, one of the things that I had just come from in Riverview Gardens was. Um, In education, um, a lot of things are said to be effective, but I had a pleasure of working in a district where effectiveness was measured by outcomes in a lot of different regards. Need that be attendance, uh, learner opportunities, standardized tests, you name it, teacher performance. And so I was accustomed to being in positions where uh, we look at data to inform some decisions. And one of the pieces of data that I was listening to a lot was coming into a new school district. um, You have a lot of conversations with uh, community constituents, students, stakeholders, et cetera. And so one of the things that I heard was in sixth grade, that's typically or more traditionally, I should say, a middle school setting, sixth, seventh, and eighth, especially in the St. Louis County area. But when you're in a sixth, seventh, and eighth grade building, you typically have more access to elective options. At the sixth grade center, we did not have those elective options. We had specialists, which would be your more traditional music, art, PE, um, health, et cetera. But we did not have um, some of the other elective choices that other districts had for our sixth grade students. At Speaker Sixth Grade Center, when I first took over, we had health, I'm sorry, we had uh, music, we had band. And those were fantastic programs, right? We were recognized across the region for our skill set in those areas. But a lot of the data that I was getting back more conversational in nature was, you know, we want foreign language. We would love computer science. We would love some of these other options that we simply just don't have. And so working with the um, with our leadership team at the school, working with HR, we were able to, in my second year, enhance elective options to um foreign language, drama class, um, art and design, um, computer science, and then we also had a situation where you still had an opportunity to take band, choir, some type of rotation. It was a seven to nine week rotation for students and they were able to tip their toe in the water a little bit, dip their toe in the water a little bit um, to see what they would like to take on a more consistent basis once they get to the middle school. And so it went very well. And the, the best thing about it was it was all with existing staff. And so that's um, in a position where we look at monies across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, that was certainly the community as well as the district uh, valued. And our students, based off survey data, speaking with them, they enjoy what we call the elective uh, wheel.
1: Yeah. I have a question just in regards to the decision. And and of course, this is maybe way outside your realm, but I've not heard about a sixth grade center just in isolation. Typically, you talk about, you know, middle school level or junior high level, and you talk about keeping them in the elementary Mm -hmm. or not. And sometimes maybe I've seen a sixth, seventh grade, but I was curious about why the district made that decision. And, um, you know, because we know that this age, kids are you know, sometimes they're just beginning that, uh, preteen kind of angst. And I've always been in a place where they've been trying to build more family and cohesion and continuity. And what, what were your feelings about that as far as, an I, you know, just having them as one sixth grade, uh, separate.
2: Uh, great question. One of the things that I've learned in the last few districts that I've had a privilege of working in um, tradition uh, can be an amazing thing and tradition can also be very difficult to let go and I think uh, ironically enough when I was a student um, in Riverview Gardens there was a district sixth grade center and so I was accustomed with the format in some shape form or fashion. Some districts um, some boards of education, they really enjoy the 7th and 8th Center um, is what I'll call it, the typical junior high school dynamic. I know there have been conversations about what's best for 6th graders, and so in the state of Missouri, you have some elementary schools where 6th graders still part of the elementary school, mm-hmm. and you have some some districts where sixth grade is part of your more traditional middle school. And so the only thing that I can say based off of um, the very few middle schools um, that I've had a a pleasure of working with, they were long lasting in the community and um, it would take some, some level of convincing to, Um, Go go in a different direction in sixth grade. Now, having said that in in Webster Groves, this year right now is the last year for the sixth grade center. Um, There was a bond issue that was passed. And so they are building on to that seventh and eighth grade center. Um, It is going to be a nice size uh, middle school, but this is the last year of sixth grade um, because that building will now be Mm -hmm. a. A elementary school that will have a broader base of students who can come in and instead of it being smaller with 125 students or so, it's going to continue to grow with the capacity of 400 or something
1: like Mm -hmm. that. I mean, I could see some real benefits because sixth grade really is kind of a unique level, right? They are facing Absolutely. just sort of that becoming and the stage of development is, is different than it is at any other grade. So there probably are some real positives, but it sounds like Absolutely. they're going to be making some shifts, huh? Hmm. Yeah, it's
0: it's, it's going to be some shifts, all right. <laughs> it's Certainly <laughs> going to be some shifts. So Dr. Fields, you talked about, um, you referenced what's best for students. And I, I agree with you that, you know, that, Uh, sometimes gets thrown around a lot, you know, like we're doing this in the best interest of students and sometimes that gets defined differently depending Mm -hmm. on who you're talking to and where you are. So can you talk a little bit about your perspective on what's best for students?
2: Um, Absolutely. I am a big advocate for uh, educational equity and access. I know, uh, unfortunately, from my experience, equity is used in a lot of different contexts. And so I want to be clear when I use the language, when I speak to educational equity, I essentially equate that to outcomes are not predicted based off um, how students are their social identity. And so we should not be able to see that regardless of who you are, if you belong to said groups and said populations, when you come into our school system, um, you will not do as well as uh, another group. And so There's a lot that goes into that, uh, and access has been a big part of that. And so when I speak in terms of learner outcomes, at the end of the day, I think um, standardized tests, I know that's always a hot-button topic, and so it's not that I'm a huge proponent of standardized tests because they are embedded in in bias and, and all of that. But what I will say is we have to have some means of assessing where our students started and where they are once they are off to the next school, the next district, the next teacher. And so how we get there is essentially equated to you pick a basketball game. If we're going to call this a foul and if this is out of bounds and all of that, then let's just be consistent. And once we do that, then we can start having shared conversations about the effectiveness of our teaching our institution, some of the resources we use, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm big on making sure we have evidence to support a lot of the claims that we are making related to all things students.
0: So what did you do when you went to your school, well, your most recent school where you were awarded um, as an outstanding principal? What what kinds of things did you uh, recognize as maybe a need, and how did you go about uh, addressing That maybe that's too big of a question, but you know you can narrow it down to one thing or two things if you'd like.
2: Yeah, I think um, oftentimes student voice is missing in many of the things that we did, and so I already spoke about the enhancing elective course options for our students. That was a byproduct of a lot of things, but I don't want to take the the power away from the influence speaking with students had in the decision to move forward with that you would think something like that is going to be an overwhelmingly popular decision. Um, But unfortunately what I've learned is oftentimes um, change gets in the way of what we want to do for our kids. Um, And and for one reason or another, that's a whole entire segment in itself. (laughs) But I think uh, we have a responsibility as leaders to lead, lead courageously, hold ourselves accountable and, and hope that our community And our colleagues will hold us accountable as well. And so in addition to the elective course options, one of the things that I was big on is going back to our uh, declarative statements, our mission, our vision, our whatever we say and we tout around as our why and what we want to do. And so one of those um, things that I inherited really spoke to student passion and making sure we utilize their passion as we allow them to navigate this, this world that we are living in today. And so, um, one of the things that we created was called passion day. Um, it was a three part shared facilitation model. And so the first passion day would be in the fall and all staff members will have an opportunity to provide instruction on something that they are passionate about. And as you can imagine, we got everything from being excited about Cardinal Baseball and the stats to yoga to basketball fundamentals to DJing, um, you name it. I mean, it was just a remarkable playlist or menu of options for students to sign up for. Our students would sign up for that, those various different classes, they would pick their top three and then they would automatically, for the most part, get one of those courses. And as you can imagine for that um, day or a portion of the day in which we engaged in it, I mean, it was all smiles, it was a lot of learning, it was retention. Um, on a side note, because I already said how I feel about data, um, there was evidence to support that we didn't have any attendance concerns on that day mm-hmm. either, and it wasn't just it wasn't just for sixth grade students, it was for our elementary school as well. And so that was spectacular. I'm very passionate about a number of things, but videography is one of those things. And so I was able to have a, a class where students will come in and learn how to use a green screen and put it together. And one of the, the uh, Passion Days, we went around and we filmed all the other Passion Day classes and put it together and edited. So it was, it was just a fantastic dynamic for that first one. In the spring, I'm sorry, in the winter, we would have a community passion day. Again, it was a three part shared facilitation model. And so community members would be able to come in. We would have um, law enforcement. We would have business owners. We would have someone who worked at Boeing, NASA, you name it. I mean, it was, it was spectacular. And again, our students would get a chance to sign up and learn from, in some cases, mom, dad, whomever. And then last but certainly not least, we do believe in a gradual uh, release. And so students were then able to facilitate a class with another student on something that they were passionate about. And the theory in that regard was to more so, if we model uh, what it sounds and looks like to be engaged in something that we are certainly passionate about, then our students would be able to, as they navigate the the school sector, but also this, this world, the role that passion has in learning and, and how you can use that to go into creativity, creative problem solving, et cetera, et cetera. And so that would be another example of some of the things we did. Again, I am all about um, increasing learner outcomes as measured by data. But for those three different days and those sections of days, um, students understood that we were going to pause on some of the other learning, the more traditional learning, and engage in something that they were passionate about. And that's one of the better decisions I felt I made uh, being a part of the Webster Grove School District.
0: Yeah, you know, that's very innovative. And I, I love that because, you know, so oftentimes we, you know, we make people leave their passions and their interests yeah. at the door when they walk into a school. And you were making it a central part of a structure in your school. And I, and, and I think that's really, really powerful.
1: On that third on that third passion day, then were those your sixth graders or did all of your students participate in presentations?
2: All of our students. And so we had fifth it was beautiful. We had fifth graders and second graders showing kindergartners how to do something and in some instances I remember vividly there was a tea party with um, second grade students who were showing fourth grade students something. It was just based on you (laughs) signed up for a course. It really didn't matter. But you know what else it did? It showed us that a lot of our students have leadership skills um, quicker than what we would imagine or quicker than what we're able to identify. And I also believe that if we use that right there, that model to assess giftedness, there was yeah. no doubt in my mind with with that dynamic, um, giftedness would be enhanced across the board, in particular for a lot of our students who have been minoritized or for a marginalized community. Yeah. I mean it was it was spectacular.
1: Right. Gave kids a chance to shine and maybe is a better indicator of of right of student skills.
2: Yep, communication and everything because mm-hmm. I may have planned out how this lesson is going to go, <laughs> and I'll never uh, forget. Um, I, I want to say it was Super Smash Brothers. There was some type of gaming dynamic, and it was it was amazing. And so I spoke with one of the students afterwards. I said, so how did it go? And they said, you know what, Dr. Fields, it went well, but a lot of my students just didn't listen. And so I think <laughs> next time I do it, I have to, instead of bringing out the game first, I would have you know, X, Y, and Z. And just, again, that level of problem solving was, was uh-huh. just uh, fascinating to right. watch.
1: Right.
0: Love it. I,
1: I have another question. And um, this is an outright request for you to brag. Okay. And the reason is because often we see descriptions of principles and they're listed as phenomenal or gifted or a strong leader. Right. And, and there are some um, adjectives out there, but in your case, it was highlighted, you are courageous which is not typically what comes with education, you know? I mean, when I hear courageous, I think of lion taming or climbing, you know, (laughs) Mount Everest. So this is your time to clearly honor that you've been called courageous, and I want to know why.
2: (laughs) Well, what I will say is, first and foremost, as a preamble, um, I've had a, a fair amount of, uh, conversations podcast, and that is the first time that question has come up. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. That what I will say is it, it's a two-parter for me. I think it's, it's a gift as well as a curse. And, and even though I might say in a rhetorical manner, you know, you mind if I just be frank, I think the, the unfortunate component is that education sometimes can be very reminiscent of, uh, politics. Yeah. And so specifically education administration. And so with that, I think we all know, um, what we believe would be best for students. We know about equality. We know about equity. And and in theory, I see maybe 90%, I'm making this number up, 90% of leaders just on some type of assessment or interview, we're able to talk about being equitable and and being fair and, and being just whoever we are for kids. What makes things much more difficult for a lot of leaders is what happens when the difference between you being equitable and all of that is based off of courage and courage within the context of this parent who is constantly coming in who has access to you access to the system access to how the system works understands our vernacular etc cetera, etc cetera. they will call you or demand certain things and you are in a position where you can stand firm on what you believe, not in a sense of just being stubborn. I want to clarify, it's not that, but you know some of those demands are going to come at the expense of someone or someone's. And often enough, it comes at the expense of those students and those said populations who don't have that person advocating beat it down the doors and making demands. And so in instances like that, I don't call that being courageous as much as I just call that as doing the right thing. And I think the, again, the unfortunate piece is um, just doing the right thing irrespective of the, the uh, backlash comes with the territory. And that's something that I always felt I, I had to do. Uh, part of my story. It was something that I wish other individuals would have done for me. Um, it speaks to my why, um, but it's also, uh, I don't hesitate to make a very difficult decision on something. I don't hesitate to support a very difficult decision. I want to be clear in that regard because it's, it's not a situation where as leaders, we're the only one that's making decisions, right? We are the ones that are collaborating and we're listening feedback and we make a decision given the scope of the whole entire school, district, community, et cetera, et cetera. But once that backlash comes, Are we still standing by a decision? I I was talking to my son earlier today. We were watching Hoop Dreams. He and my daughter, um, we were talking, and we were talking about leadership and everything, and I said, uh, you know what, Howard? He was Howard the Fourth, and he said, uh, what's going on, Dad? I said, I can tell everything I need to know about courageous leadership going via your neighborhood drive-through of a fast food restaurant. He said, "Well, say more, and I said, well, here's the deal oftentimes something may go wrong if they mess up a, if they mess up an order or they take a little bit more time than what you would have um, liked or more time than what's advertised with fast food. And you'll get someone when you hand that order back and you say, Hey, this is wrong, or whatever. Sometimes you'll get someone who would say, you know what? They've been messing up all day. This is a true story. I've, I've heard these things or you know what? I I'm sorry. This, this earpiece is messed up or whatever. Or you'll get someone who will say, you know what, my mistake, we'll take care of it and move forward. And and what I find is that in leadership, sometimes, unfortunately, leaders, we do that too, where when things get hard, we can throw someone else under the bus. We cannot stand by the district's decision, et cetera, et cetera. And those things are very unfortunate based off my experience. And so when someone calls me courageous within the context of education and leadership, it's more so uh, we're gonna make decisions, we're gonna stand by those decisions, we are going to pivot when necessary, but we're not going to allow um, pushback, which typically isn't even the majority of pushback, um, to dictate how we move, because I've also found if that's the model in which you have led, most likely your leadership is reactive more so than proactive as well as more student-centered. And so I know that's a lengthier response, but I don't call it, um, I wouldn't frame it rather as courage as much as it's doing the right thing, irrespective of the consequences or the pushback.
0: Wow.
1: I really like that. And, and if you don't mind, just a couple of things that stand out that I, I want to put into words. One, what an interesting thought to, th- to hear you say to do the right thing meant courage when really we should all be doing it and then it would just be normal not courageous right yeah. <laughs> so That's i think that is interesting but secondly i want to just share a, how poignant it is for me right now because i've been spending time this last week on reflecting on my own leadership and i i've been struggling with trying to determine what is the just right amount of push to to get what I want, so to speak. And there yeah. are times when I I recognize and I've been reflective this week that I have not been maybe making decisions to do more because I feel like I'm not going to get the traction that I want. So I've adjusted because I feel like I will get more <laughs> progress. Does that make sense? So yeah, absolutely, it does. good for me to listen to, good for me to reflect on and think about. And I appreciate you sharing.
2: Absolutely. It's my pleasure.
0: What um, what advice would you give a leader uh, who wanted to be more courageous and maybe was nervous about taking that step? Like, are there some little things that you would suggest that leaders could do to address their own courage in schools?
2: Absolutely. The first thing I would say is... Um, Grace is big um, and not just um, grace from the standpoint of as a phenomenal leader here in St. Louis, I move I had a pleasure of working with Dr. Grace Lee, uh, but grace is big as it relates to providing everyone with grace, but in particular ourselves. Um, The Howard fields that you're speaking to right now. um, I don't live with regret. I will say that, but if I knew then what I know now, Even with some of the successes that I've had and been a pleasure of working with others, I feel as if I would have been able to impact many more staff members or many more communities or many more students. And so I think about that. We have to allow ourselves the grace to learn and evolve. We have to provide ourselves the grace that once we fall, what are we going to do? Are we going to get back up? I am a huge hip-hop fan. I am a, a... I listen to music all the time when I'm jogging and all of that. So I will quote um, Cardi mm-hmm. B in a clean context. And she basically said, um, I've been down nine times, but as long as I get up 10. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's something that we have to remember. As long as we get up or we learn from or we put ourselves in a position where that last failure that we've had, can help either motivate us or humble us even sometimes and force us to learn, I think that's the best way to be. Oftentimes, if you're not doing anything to put yourself in a position to fail, then are you in a system where you're really pushing as much as you could and should? It could be a rhetorical question. And so grace would be the big thing first. The second of which I would say is go back to those declarative statements. I mean, regardless of what coast you're on, regardless of what school or district you're on, we all have the same statements that speak to our intent, right? And so when we read that and that's our intent, then let's try to make sure that's a live and breathe and document, but let's also make sure it's actionable. It has teeth. And so for instance, If we're saying that we're going to be in a system that values diversity, because that's something that's come up a lot across the board. Well, what would it sound and look like to engage in some initiatives or engage in some professional learning with our students, with our staff, with our colleagues to say, you know, so what would that mean for you? Okay. You get everybody's voice, but what would that look like? So if we were living this statement out in the true essence or the spirit in which it was written, Uh, What would be happening in our schools? What would be happening in our offices, et cetera, et cetera? And you begin to write those things down. And so once you do that, at least here in the state of Missouri, we have a comprehensive school improvement plan, and every school has to put together a comprehensive school improvement plan as well as a district school improvement plan. And one of the the smartest things I believe that I did um, working with my leadership team, uh, being a principal in Webster Groves, was we put equity and diversity not just in our comprehensive school improvement plan, but we put some clear action steps in there that was comprised of feedback from our leadership team. No one wants to be part of a top-down approach, although we understand and hopefully we respect the role that leadership plays. But if I can get you to talk, if I can get you to engage on these things, then if this is something that we all believe in, then we can move forward. Now, one of the last things I would say is is be careful because sometimes we want what's comfortable, right? If my um, superintendent were to ask, okay, Howard, what do you want to be evaluated on? Then nine times out of 10, I want to make sure I'm evaluated on those things that will make sure I'm back the next year, right? Mm-hmm. But I also want to make sure we're stretching. And so leaders, please don't put yourselves in a situation where you're not moving forward because your building isn't ready or because the staff wouldn't go for this or because there's just too much going on right now. There are two very different, but distinct images of leadership. One of which is the leader in the back building capacity and building through cognitive coaching, et cetera, all different strategies for your team to lead. Right. I used to say all the time, If you're doing what you need to do in a building three or five years, you should be expendable because you should have built capacity amongst those in your building, right? So that image is there. But oftentimes leadership is still being in the front when there are turbulent times or when your vision, you believe this is going to get us where we need to be. And it's it's interchangeable. Sometimes you're going to be in the front. Sometimes it's going to be in the back. It's going to happen. And there's not one image of leadership that will encompass all of the various different things that we go through. So um, I would say grace, first and foremost, I would say um, leading with those declarative statements through collaboration and getting feedback. And then things that you know, last and certainly not least, that you know will help us get to where we want to go and get to where we need a lot of our school communities, we don't have the the luxury of waiting three to five years for a strategic plan or anything. We have to go now. In those instances, you have to lead and you have to lead and do the right thing, i.e. some people will say courageous.
1: Yeah. Thank you. And our final question we end on, uh, maybe you've already answered it in, in some of these last um, thoughts you've been sharing with us. But well, we like to ask our guests to imagine that they could enter into a time machine and go back and talk to their younger self and give their younger self advice. What advice would you give yourself?
2: I would probably go back to high school. Um, and I would have a conversation uh, with myself um, and and let my younger self know that There isn't a school system that can adequately, with pinpoint accuracy, tell you how intelligent, how creative, and how dynamic you are. I Mm -hmm. think that would be key. I think um, my my mother and father are spectacular. They're the reason why I'm here. Um, They're great. Um, they came from from the projects, and they just wanted their kids to work and do well. And so they've heard this before.
0: But I remember
2: asking my mom when I came home one day for a career day, and I said, hey, mom, there's a lawyer, you know, a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, oh, man, that's too much schooling. Like, you know, it's too much schooling. I asked my father years after I had, you know, received my associate's degree, And I said, dad, um, what did you think I was going to do? And he's like, you know what? I knew, I knew you had people skills. Um, you know, I figured you would be a manager somewhere at a store. And so none of those are are negative things I might add, but they wanted to make sure that what they were providing me was something that was reasonable, something Mm -hmm. that I can be successful in. Mm -hmm. And they did not want to scare me in the wrong direction. And when you think about their upbringing and where they came from, um, That was essentially what was happening, and so I respect my parents and all of that, but now as I, you know, degrees later, uh, associate's degree, well, Dr. Fields, why did you take the extra four classes to get your associate's degree when you could have just went into your bachelor's degree and not have the extra debt, right? And I said, well, because I wasn't sure that I was going to get to that next uh, milestone. Mm-hmm. If I didn't get my bachelor's, I knew at least I had my associate's. Mm-hmm. And so after the associate's, after the bachelor's, after the master's, the specialist's, and, and now the, the PhD PhD, um, with every breath of my body, I want to make sure that I am able to have conversations with students, with leaders, regardless of where you come from, regardless of your upbringing. Again, if my both of my parents weren't in the home, it would have been challenging because they have been very influential in what I do. But everything is possible. And for those parents or for those students, if you're, you know, you have a child senior year and they still don't know what they want to do, or you know, if you're a student and everybody else, your, your classmates, they have college that they're going through. They're a major. Uh, provide yourself with some grace, because I was going to go to ITT Tech. I, I registered for college the last day of late registration for St. Louis Community College. And it's a span of 12 hours, if I would have not have made that decision, um, you wouldn't be speaking to me right now, hmm. especially in this context. Yeah. And so uh, have patience have grace, but to the specific question in terms of me telling my younger self, I would have told myself, have patience, have grace, and you are a remarkable mind, and you just need to continue to stay fast and go. Nice. Nice.
1: nice. Well, thank you so much, and we know you're very busy. We didn't even get to like the 92 other things that are in your biography and we found <laughs> online that you've been part of, so we might have to have you come back and share with us a little more. Um, and I'm going to just specifically mention, uh, when we bring you back, we'd love to know more about your black males in education in St. Louis and just the work you've been doing. I know you were um, at least part of some of the, the process of recovering and healing in Ferguson. Um, and what was going on there. So uh, we do, we have more to talk about. And so if you don't mind, we might reach out to you again in the future. But thank you for today and talking about your work at Givens Elementary and the sixth grade center. Uh, we've learned a lot today and I really like those passion days. I'm going to try and implement those in a couple of spots.
2: Please do. And I would be remiss um, if I didn't just not only thank you all, um, thank the Webster Grove School District for allowing me, Um, The years that I had over there were spectacular, Um, great people, great community, great students, um, colleagues that I work with, and and right now with BMESPL again, we didn't get a chance to go in um, to those things, but there's something that's really going well in our second iteration of the State of Black Educators Symposium. Um, It's not just for black educators, but the speakers and the the experiences and, and all of that are based off of um, things that black educators are, are going through. And so, if that's something that is um, intriguing to you, last year we had 1,400 people in mm. attendance when we anticipated Great. 300. This year we might have, um, you know, two to 3,000 people across the nation. It's, it's free. It's something that I think, um, all educators will find value in. And if you're interested, just check it out in sbe21.com. Again, that's SBE. 21.com dot com. The State of Black educator Symposium. It will be February fourth and
0: fifth, twenty twenty-one. That's awesome. We'll also link to it from our podcast. So, um, thank you thank for you. The, thank you for that piece of information. It's been really um, pleasurable today talking to you, Doctor Fields, and uh, you have done some amazing work, very inspiring work. Thank you for everything, and uh, best of luck for the rest of the school year.
2: Thank you. You all be safe, and on behalf of the students colleagues and community you serve. I appreciate it so much. Very good. Have a great rest of your day. You too.